0: Time for Wait What, your regular dose of real talk with the ghetto genius, Jay Wonder. What up, y'all? Welcome to Wait What, your regular dose of real talk. I am your host, the ghetto genius, Jay Wonder. And today's guest is someone whose life I want to live desperately. He's a former host of Dan Dunn's Happy Hour, as well as Drinky Fun Time. And in June of last year, 2019, he launched the podcast, What We're Drinking. Folks, he's honest, he loves booze, and he's here to tell us all about it. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Dunn. Dan, what's up?
1: Jay Wonder, what's going on, man?
0: Not much, man. It's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. I was telling you prior that when I posted on my Instagram today on my stories that you'd be a guest for the show, it was great because everyone was like, holy shit. And I was telling them how we met a couple of years ago in San Diego and just drinking with you and just fucking, you're just, you're just a cool guy. And they said, uh, what was the, what was the one thing you remember about Dan? I said, oh yeah, he's a Philly guy. He wore a Philly's jersey. He's fucking Philadelphia all day.
1: We went to the game. I came down there. We did a show down there, my former show. And then- I went to the Phillies Padres game at that beautiful stadium back when we could gather public. I know. Remember those days? I remember those days, man. And you're um, you're still in L.A., yeah? Yeah, I live in Venice Beach. Yep.
0: Nice, nice. Well, um, let's go. Like, let's move forward with it, man. Because I have a lot of questions to ask, um, and I'm really actually excited about it. But you were a former Playboy columnist, published a few books, most notably uh, American wino living loaded and currently have your podcast. What we're drinking. What the fuck were you doing before all of this, man? You've just, it, it's just like this history of you. You have so uh, just all these accolades. I love it. You have just been so involved with everything. What the hell were you doing before
1: all this stuff going on? How much time we have? No. <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the elevator pitch here. I, I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, obviously, Phillies fan. I grew up poor in Philly. I didn't, with a single mother, didn't have much growing up, didn't know about the big wide world out there. And then when I got, I was writing in, in college, in high school. And when I got out of school, I, decided, I grew up in one of these neighborhoods where nobody leaves, you know, very lower middle class, blue collar, you, you, you know, you just, you, you're born there, you're raised there and you die there. And I had a ex-girlfriend that moved to Miami, went down to visit her one time and it was amazing. And I we were like, we're going to make this work. So I'm going to leave Philly. I'm going to move down there. You know, this is my early twenties and she was a nurse. She had just got out of nursing school, and. I'm going to write a novel and we're going to live together and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I was there for 19 days and that's how long it took to realize this shit wasn't going to work out. Now (laughs) I was not going back to Philadelphia. I leaving was such a monumental uh, moment in my life. and, And it felt like my life was really starting at that point. And so I wasn't going to go back. I didn't know where to go. We had an old family friend that was living in Colorado Springs Colorado and Joe his name was Joe and he's kind of like my grandfather. He was an old guy and he said I could come out there. He was living with his girlfriend Theo who was about 90 and I'm not exaggerating. Joe was probably in his mid 80s and Theo was about 90. Yeah. And I'm 23. So I drive out there in my Jeep. I go from Miami. I'd never been to that part of the country. I remember being blown away when I first saw the Rockies come into view and it was magical, really. And and I got to Colorado Springs started working on my book and I wasn't ready to write a book at that point. I wasn't nearly good enough. I'm still not. But at one point, my dad, I didn't know my dad a lot growing up, but we had reconnected and he said, you should go visit your cousins, Dennis and Mike, both around my age. I knew them a little bit growing up but and they're living in Aspen. They just moved to Aspen to be ski bums. Now, I never heard of Aspen. I didn't know anybody that had ever been to Aspen. Aspen may as well have been Bombay, India. You know, that's how far in it was to me, but I thought, all right. So I drove over. It was January of 1993. I I drove over the pass, the Continental Divide. I went over the Route 70 over that way and, and I got to Aspen. And wow, man, I'd never seen anything like that. It had just snowed. It was a gorgeous, beautiful place. And I, I spent the weekend, I had the most amazing weekend I'd ever had. And I, I drove back to Colorado Springs and I said, Joe, I, I think I'm leaving. I think I'm going to go spend the rest of the winter in Aspen. And I went there and I crashed on my cousin's couch thinking I'd just stay for a few months while I figured out what my next move was going to be. And yeah, but I loved it. And I did that first winter. And then I actually went back to Philly to collect my cousin who I brought with me. Dennis, I said, you're going to like Aspen, man. Let's go back there. And, and we went back and, uh, oh, by the way, so prior to that, my cousin's girlfriend at the time was writing for the Aspen daily news. And I had, I didn't have many possessions with me, but I had a box of stuff. And in that box was a folder of, of columns that I wrote for the temple news. I went to temple university in Philly. Owls, huh? Yeah. And Lisa was reading that and she says, boy, you're really good you should meet my editor at the Aspen Daily News. And I was like, yeah, all right, whatever. She gave him some stuff and he asked me to come in. His name's Curtis Robinson. He's now one of my best friends. And he said, yeah, you know what? I'd like to give you a column for the paper, but I don't have any money. I can't pay you anything, but you can do the column. And I said, all right, man. Advice to all you youngsters out there. You know, you never know where it's going to lead. Take any gig you can get. So I started writing this column called Twisted. While working several other jobs, I worked in a bar. I worked on the mountain, uh, in the ski storage area, so I could get my ski pass. You know, I was teaching snowboarding, driving, delivering pizzas for Domino's. This is all at the same time, and I was wow. writing this column. And one day, I went to the bank, and uh, the there was a girl there. She was young, my age. Teller, I was cashing one of my checks from one of my jobs, and she said are you Dan Dunn from the newspaper? And I said, yeah. And she turned to the girl next to her and said, this is the guy from the paper. He's really funny. And oh, we love your column. And that was the moment really in my life where I went, I ran, I went back, I called my mom and I said, mom, some woman, I don't even know, just said she likes my column. My mom was like, okay, yeah. When are you leaving there and getting a real job? No. But anyway, that was the moment when I thought maybe, maybe this could be something for me. And then not long after that, I ran for mayor of I decided to run for mayor of Aspen. It was a goof at first, but then- You're I, fucking I, kidding me. Are you serious? Yeah, <laughs> I saw I saw a thing and I was writing columns and I needed an idea for something to write about. And I saw a thing in the paper that said that the the applications to get on the mayoral ballot were due that day. I thought, well, this could be interesting. I called City Hall. I said, what do you need to do to get on the ballot? And it's such a small town, Aspen. Yeah. You just need to get 200 signatures. Of the voters, I said, "Really? All right." So I went over and I got this petition from City Hall, and I walked around town and I just got people to sign this thing and Fuck. i collected a bunch of signatures. And the next thing you know, I was actually running for mayor of Aspen, and, <laughs> and it it became a kind of a thing. And I did pretty well. I didn't win, but I got like twenty percent of the vote. And then wow. that and then that's when I got the phone call. Uh, I came into where I came into the office at the Daily News, and they said Hunter called for you. I said, Hunter Thompson, because uh, Hunter S. Thompson lived in Woody Creek, right out, outside of Aspen. He said, Get the fuck out of here! And then, like an hour or two later, the phone rang, and it was it was him. And he said he wanted to, he wanted to meet me. And I said, Okay. Wow. Now, I'd seen him around town, but I'd never met him. And so we went to this place called the Howling Wolf. that pulled up him and the sheriff in the old red shark, and thus began a ten year relationship with Hunter that you know ended obviously when he killed himself. But so I became very close with him and I was doing some work with him and, but he was a real mentor to me. So long story short with Aspen, I was doing really well. The column did really well. I started getting, obviously getting paid for it and it was popular. And then I got a call one day from a newspaper in Arizona. A guy had read something I'd written and they were launching a weekly to compete with the new times in Arizona. And they, they needed a columnist and they wanted to fly me to Phoenix to, I thought I was, you know, uh, uh you know, uh, auditioning for the job, but I already had it. I was, I was so fucking dumb back then. I didn't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I was, I was, I was a rube, you know, and so they flew me to Arizona. They flew me first class. I'd never been in first class in my life. And they put me up in this really nice hotel in downtown Phoenix. And I walk into the papers, the tribune, the, and the tribune was a big paper in Phoenix. Yeah, And they said, there was everybody was there, the publisher, the managing editor, the editor in chief, everybody. And they said, So what's it gonna take to get you down here? And now I didn't want to leave Aspen. I was having a phenomenal time. I was snowboarding and writing and I was getting laid constantly and I was hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson and Johnny Depp and John Kuzak and everybody in that orbit. I, I didn't really want to go. Shit. So <laughs> what I did is I again, I, I was not a genius back then. So this is in the late '90s, or uh, actually in like '97. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought to myself, well, what I'll do is I will, I'll throw out a crazy number that there's no way they'll say yes, right? And I can just go back home and be fine. And they're like, "What's it gonna take to get you? And I went, "Hmm, fifty thousand dollars." <laughs> <laughs> at which point i imagine every one of them they were all kicking each other under the table going this guy and they're like $50,000 and i'm like and my own computer and they're like okay and you got to like help me pay to move here if i were to move here and they're like okay what else? and i was like that's wow. it and they're like well let's let you know let's talk about it and then and then the publisher goes we don't even have to talk about it we can do that Thank you. I think they wanted me to agree before I actually spoke to someone who had a fucking clue and was like, what are you doing? man? We should be at, you know. So that's what happened. But for me back then, $50,000 was a lot of money. So yeah. I did it. I took the job and I went down there and it went really well quickly, but I, I wasn't happy. And then started to do pretty well because just because I wasn't happy. So I was going to go back to Aspen and I said, well, I'm going to leave. And they said- what's it going to take to keep you here? <laughs> and then I learned my lesson. I was like, double, double what I'm making right now. And they said, okay, so that, you know, so now I'm thir- 29 years old and I'm making $100,000 and this, is, you know, 20 some years ago, it's a lot of money. And that went well. And of course I won this big award down, not of course I won, no one would know that, but I won a big award down there called the best of the West. And then I had this sort of Groucho Marx idea. Any Any club that'll have me, I don't want to be a member of. And I'm not joking you within a month of winning that award, I quit. I'm not staying here. And I, I went, I was going to go back to Colorado. I did go back to Colorado briefly, but then I thought, Oh man, I can't, I got to keep going forward with my life and my career. So I came to out here to California. And then I got a job writing for talk soup. Remember the show? Talk Soup? Yeah,
0: I do. I absolutely remember talk soup. Yeah.
1: Aisha Tyler was the host.
0: Host? yes, I do. when
1: When I was on there and I wrote for them and then, friend after talk soup ended for me, a friend of mine was the CEO of, or CFO of the Metro international newspapers. It was a chain of free dailies all over the world. Yeah. And they, he said, and they had them in uh, Philly and Boston and New York, and then all over London, Paris. And he said, do you want to write some, we need someone to write uh, movie reviews and we want someone funny and with a personality you want to do it. I said, sure. And then I pitched him on this I- idea. So what had happened, man, was while I was in Arizona this magazine that I was freelancing for said, Hey, do you want to go to Scotland to drink scotch and sail around, the, you know, the Hebrides islands and write about it for us. And this blew my mind. I was like, what <laughs> what, what are you talking about? And he said, I said, you're going to pay for me to do this. He says, no, no, the, it's a press junket. The brands are going to pay for it. And this was such a foreign concept. I said, wait a minute. You mean they're going to, fly me and he's like first class too i was like what they're gonna fly me to scotland i'm gonna sail around the hebrides islands for two weeks visiting drinking scotch going to distilleries and write about it that's that's what you're saying yes i'm in man and i did it so you got to realize the thing we call the craft cocktail movement now and you're down in san diego and there's tons of places down there you got amazing you know uh, polite provisions and and all those type spots none of that was it was it was all just the beginning of that, right? It had not even happened yet. So, I did that trip, and then I did another trip to Turin, Italy, for the Martini and Rossi Grand Prix of Bartending. So this was in 1999.
0: Was was that the start of the fucking Flair and the bars
1: and so Flair? Well, that was kind of the end of Flair, but it was like the sort of the beginning of what you would call craft. The resurgence of craft craft cocktails. Cocktails, yeah. And on that trip, I was with uh, uh, several people, but one of the gentlemen's names was was Dale DeGroff. And Dale is probably the most famous bartender in the United States. He is credited with sort of spearheading. Excuse me, I'm burping, which you should do if you're a drinks (laughs) writer and host a drinking show. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Dale is credited with really bringing back craft cocktails in America. He is the founder of the museum of the modern uh, cocktail and, or whatever the hell it's called. And Dale, I remember we were walking through the streets of Turin, Italy. and We went to cafe Torino, a very, very famous place. Mm-hmm. And Dale introduced me. That's where I had my very first Negroni. I mean, ah. I mean, you gotta realize, man, I was drinking beer and fucking vodka and, you know, of Kool Aid, and right. <laughs> I wasn't a sophisticated drinker by any means. And I remember Dale introducing me to Amaro and to all kinds of cocktails. I remember I had a Sazerac, and and he's telling me how this is all coming back, and it, and I thought he was crazy. I'm like, yeah. no one's gonna drink this shit. You know, I mean, it was good, but I was like, who's you know, and but it stuck with me. And so two years, three years later, when I got the Metro gig, I said, yeah, I'll write movie I said, how about if I write a uh, a drinking column too? So what do you mean? Like you go out and get drunk. And I said, no, I said, kind of, you know, along in the same vein as a, as a food critic, but for alcohol and it could be cocktails. It could be just reviewing individual bottles of alcohol trends. And he said, yeah, you could do that. I can't pay you any extra money. And me being the shrewd negotiator that I've already established, I am, <laughs> I was like, of course I'll do it for free. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it, in the end it paid off, but, uh, I started writing that column and it was called the imbiber and I called it that and I dubbed it that. And, and that became the most popular thing I was doing for Metro pretty quickly. And I started getting more money and doing well with that. And then I got my first book deal out of that uh, for a book that I wrote called nobody likes a quitter and other reasons to avoid rehab. And, (laughs) and then I got a call from playboy magazine saying, Hey, how'd you like to come over here and write that column for us? And I said, okay,
0: <laughs> as, you, wow, yeah. as you
1: would. Yep. And then I started writing for Playboy and that went for a couple of years and that was great. And that led to my next book, which was living loaded tales of sex, salvation, and the pursuit of the never ending happy hour. Playboy ended. When I say it ended, that usually means I got fired. Um, <laughs> And then I don't know what I did after that. Oh, I got a oh, I had a show on Sirius XM called Dan Dunn's Happy Hour. I, I oh, I saw, duh, forgot about that little thing. I sold a pilot to Fox uh based on Living Loaded that I wrote with Rob Meckelheny from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, no wrote, big deal. No big yeah, deal. Yeah, and we and we made the pilot. It actually got made. It was a it didn't go to series, but I have a million and a half dollar home movie. It was called Living Loaded. The main character was Dan. Donald Sutherland was in it. Larry Wilmore was in it. Uh, this guy named Mike Vogel played the lead, but it didn't go to series, unfortunately. So then I start, and then I got a couple other Hollywood gigs after that. I did a podcast with Zane Lamprey, you know, created three sheets and all that. Zane, Zane and I had a show and, um, oh, and then I wrote American Wino, which came out four years ago. And that's been in various stages of development. It looked like it was actually going to finally happen as a, um, uh, TV series at Netflix and then covid hit so i don't know where it's at right now but hopefully it'll go once we get back up and running oh and then i start and then i started this too and drinky fun time i had drinky fun time mm-hmm. uh was a show i had before this and and that uh didn't work out and uh remember what i say when i say things didn't work out or yeah, they ended yeah. it, it <laughs> means it was horrible I think it was a ball of flames and
0: this is how, I, and that's actually how I met Dan. I met Dan yeah. through Jinky Fun Time about two, three years ago in San Diego and probably had some of the fucking best booze of my life. But
1: anyways. We had a, we had a lot of fun. And when I say yeah. these things ended in a, in a, like a fiery crash, it's, it's always my fault. So I will say that, but so that ended and, and I wanted to do another show. I wanted to get back in it. And that's when I came up with the idea for what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, which is you know now, now and my. It's been uh, it's been really it's gone so well. I'm on Dan Harmon's network, Starburns. Dan Harmon, the creator of Rick and Morty community, we're on his network. But we I've had some you know McConaughey's been on the show. Pitbull, Jason Aldean, Christy Brinkley was just on the current episode. We've got Colin Donnell from Chicago Med is on. Charles Woodson, Charles Woodson, uh, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been a lot of fun. We got Maynard James Keenan's going to be coming on hopefully soon. And, uh, well, tell of- us
0: about the, tell us about the show. Tell us about the show. Like, um, how did you come up with the idea? What is it about? What's the the subject matter and all that? I mean, obviously it's booze related, but tell us a little bit about that. Let's talk about what we're drinking.
1: Yeah. I mean, the format is fluid. <laughs> some episodes, <laughs> some episodes I might, you know, re- re- read an excerpt from the book, but now usually we have, a guest on. A lot of times it's a celebrity guest. Steven Soderbergh was another one. I was, I'm forgetting a lot of the people that have been on, but not forgetting them. I'm forgetting that they were on. And a lot of times when it's celebrities, they, they have their own brand. Uh, that's why they're coming on. You know, they all Dean had a bourbon and Makane works with wild Turkey and Soderbergh has a brand called Singani, which is a, the national spirit of Bolivia. and, they come on and they'll talk about the brand and whatnot. But even when we don't have celebrities, we'll have, you know, we'll have distillers on, I'll do a lot of history. I like to talk about the history of, because drinking is a through line that goes back centuries and centuries and centuries. And, and there's so much in human history, that's tied into alcohol and whether that's policy and laws, the way laws are created or, uh, Especially here in this country, you you look back, prohibition was such a signature event in American history, and uh, tons of laws that you would not necessarily associate with alcohol are rooted in prohibition. Uh, Cabaret licenses in New York City, for instance, where you have to, you know, you can't dance in a bar unless you have a cabaret license. That was, there's a great example. So during prohibition, Speakeasies in Harlem became all the rage, you know, the Cotton Club and places like that. Yep. And they were great. And all all the whiteies from from lower Manhattan would would go up to Harlem and go to the speakeasies and it, and then when when prohibition ended, they were like, I don't want to fucking go back there. You know, I, this is great. I love, this is fun, man. This is this is the shit, you know? Yeah. And so uh all the whiteies that were controlling the world back then and probably still are to a degree, they said, "Well, how do we get how do we get everybody out of Harlem? Well, we'll create a, a law that says you have to have a cabaret license to uh, be able to dance and have music." And I'm gonna give you one guess: Who do you think was not being granted cabaret licenses after oh. they after they passed that law? Yeah, yeah, not, ma- not many establishments in Harlem were getting those cabaret licenses. Get, yeah. So that's what they did, and and then what they realize is this is a great money make, and that's what a lot of it is with prohibition now is they realize they can make a lot of money, yeah. You know? So, and that's, so much of that still goes on. I mean, another example would be in Colorado. It's not anymore, but it used to be on Sundays, you couldn't buy, you could only buy 3.2% alcohol beer on Sundays. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Why did they keep that in place? Cause it was money. Cause then they had to, you had to make two different kinds of beer, you know, and it, it it's crazy. Like there's so much, this goes back to prohibition. So I like to talk about stuff like that. I like to talk about people who played a significant role. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ, uh, Thomas Jefferson was the first guy in America, in, in, the United States that tried before there was the United States in the new world who tried to cultivate vinifera, the old vine grapes like Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir. He was trying to do that in, in, at Monticello. And then he got sidetracked by this thing called the revolutionary war. I mean, it's a <laughs> crazy story. Shit. He, yeah. uh, he, he, Got it. It was going to happen, right? This is in Virginia, and and he got he planted the vineyards, and he ha- hired this guy named Mazai, an Italian guy who was helping with the cause, who came in as an advisor on how to grow these, how to grow vin- the old world grapes. Okay, and they got it, and they're ready to go, and they set it up, and then the war happens, and they're all off fighting the war. Mazai went over to Europe to try to get money for the cause, and while this was going on. They had captured this uh, uh, Prussian general and they put him up at Montecito. The lesson here being, of course, when you're rich, even when you're a prisoner of war, you get the, you know. So this guy, they they, they set him up at Montecito, this prisoner of war, who then proceeds to let all of his horses, because he had his troops with him, graze in the vineyards. And in the court, and Jefferson wrote something in his diaries about, like, in the course of two days, these horses destroyed. 10 years worth of work. So it never happened. The Virginia wine company is what, what he called his wine company, Jefferson. They never produced a single bottle of wine because of that. But it was, but again, man, there's so many Donald fucking Trump, man. Donald Trump bought, if you go to right down the road from, from Monticello in Charlottesville, there's two wineries that sit directly across the street from each other. And they are a microcosm of America. One winery is called Trump winery okay and right across the street and trump winery is exactly what you would expect mahogany gold trump everywhere just ostentatious and you know they're probably burning fucking any fossil fuel they can burn down there they're doing it (laughs) they've got everybody's got to be illegal that's working there even though he's trying to kick them out of the country then you cross the street and right across the street is a vineyard owned by dave matthews yeah. And called Blenheim. And Dave has one up in Sonoma County too, but the one down there is called Blenheim. And Blenheim is all completely sustainable, uh, gravity-based, all reclaimed wood. It's the it's the complete opposite of Trump. And so there's great history there. I mean, it's just there's so many stories, and that's why I do this show. That's fucking great, man. That That's
0: crazy. You just busted a lot of knowledge to, I think, a lot of people, which which is awesome because
1: I didn't know... Any of that shit. Well, the best thing about Trump was, and and I when I wrote American Wino, this is in the book, and this is before any of us had any idea that Trump was going to run for president. Or so it was kind of funny then, and I don't know how much how funny it is now, but but it's great because how he got the vineyard is so Trump. Uh, it was a <laughs> it was a vineyard called Oh man, it's it's escaping me right now, but it was doing really good. Virginia actually can produce great wine, and this vineyard was killing it. In the early two thousands, yeah. and the woman that owned it was a socialite from DC, and she it was on an old, uh, an old historic, you know, would, let's call it what it was. It was plantation, uh, but this site was a historic site, and she bought it. And um, in two th- right before, like two thousand seven, she decides to go all the fuck in on this winery and invest a ton of money into expanding it and whatever. And we know what happened in two thousand eight. The economy collapsed. Okay, so she lost a lot, and she ended up having to went into foreclosure, and they were trying to sell off their assets. And the one thing they wanted to hold on to was the the main property, you know, where the the main house and all that. And They were asking, I think, like fifteen million, but they made a mistake when they parceled out the land that they were offering in auction, and. One of the parcels actually contained the front yard and Trump's lawyers saw this and they bought that parcel knowing that no one would buy the house if you can't, if you don't own the front yard.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: What so, they bought the parcel of land and then they just said, well, look, we'll buy the house, but we're going to give you 6 million instead of 15, like no fucking way. And they're like, well, then try selling it. We own, we own, the, we own the front yard essentially. I mean, and, and that, I did it and they bragged about it. There was an art, I remember reading an article in the, when I was researching the book in the Washington post and they bragged about how they screwed this woman over. And I was like, boy, who knew Donald Trump was so ruthless? <laughs> Fuck Jesus. Little did I know I was go- about to find out a few years later. So that's another. And, and by the way, the other one was the guy running the winery was his son, Eric. And I remember writing like, oh, I think he's doing a great job. Apparently he looks good. And not knowing what a, I don't know what everybody's politics are, but I would say Eric now has proven himself maybe not to be the brightest bulb. And, uh, but back then when I wrote the book, so I apologize to anybody that reads American Wino and thinks I was being sympathetic to Eric Trump. I'm sorry. But yeah, <laughs> and, and again, man, there are stories like this from baseball pitchers that own you know wineries to crazy people to you know there's just so many stories and I love you know you hear the George Clooney story and yeah like came up with this idea that they then sold for a billion dollars dollars you know?
0: right right yeah you know, you know and I don't want to jump back and forth but you know maybe we can get into it later but I wanted to get your thoughts actually on Dwayne Johnson The Rock obviously his Tequila and we can get into that a little later but you are a booze enthusiast and I have to know when it comes to an eclectic array of booze like what is your go-to so let's start off with beer if you ever have beer what is what is your beer of choice
1: i'm not a, i'm not a big beer guy uh okay but i did just try one i did a show with them and they sent me some it's a place down in georgia athens georgia but they're they're opening up a brewery here in los angeles called creature comforts mm-hmm. and it was a really great beer they had some incredible ipas and pilsners and you know i'm a big if i'm gonna drink beer i like pilsner. But in terms of mass, well, I always liked Anchor Steam. And uh, if I were out in a bar and I were ordering a beer, this is how rare I, rarely I, I order beer. If I were out in a bar, I, I mean, I like Pilsner or which yeah. is the original Pilsner from the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. Big fan yep. of that one. But, you know, look, I live at the beach, you know, nothing, nothing like a Corona or a Pacifico with a lime in it, you know. But again, I'm just not a big beer drinker.
0: Okay. If it comes to wine, what are you having?
1: Oh man. Well, I mean, there's the, the uh, impossible I mean, I, you know, like I am partial to California wine because I live here and I, I love, I mean, I, I think in terms of overall diversity, California is as special as any place in the world. That said, I, I I love a good Bordeaux and a good Burgundy. I like old world wines. I love Tempranillo from Spain. I love uh, this. The Italian varietals are so good. I, I just had a, a Chianti the other night that I loved. But my go-to wines are pro- mostly going to be California. I just, I mean, BV is one of my favorites. I like Jordan a lot from Sonoma County. From Jordan's Hillsburg. very good. Jordan's got a great Cabernet, a great Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. man, it's just, you know, but then give me a New Zealand Pinot Noir or New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I love wine. I mean, that's probably what I drink more than anything else because it fascinates me. You just, there's just so much, you could never learn everything there is to know about wine. So I I love it. I really do. And, and, and I like that, you know, wines change from vintage to vintage. Mm -hmm. You know, when you start getting into if I buy maker's mark, I know what it's going to taste like. And I right, love maker's right. mark. Yeah. So it's not going to change. And I'd be like, Oh, the, <laughs> the 2018 maker's mark is what, you know, now they have different expressions that change, but if you're just going to buy the standard, if you ju- buy Johnny Walker black, you know what you're getting, like, you know what jo- and it's always going to taste that way. And wine, even particular, uh, expressions of wine, if you want to call them particular labels, particular, they change from vintage to vintage and that. And that's, I think that's special.
0: Nice. So when we get now into the, and the hard stuff, whiskey, for example, what would be your choice?
1: Well, I'm looking right now at a bottle of Buna Havan scotch. My dog is named after Buna Havan. That's how much I love it. I love it. <laughs> Buna Havan is a, is made on Isla, which is for those of you that drink scotch, sometimes people mispronounce it Islay, but it's Isla. I-S-L-A-Y, which is an island off the West coast of Scotland, uh, right near a place called Oban, which people often mispronounce Oban. It's Oban. And you can take a ferry over there. You can take a little seaplane to Isla. And Isla is where the pediest scotches come from. Uh, Brooklati, Lagavulin, famous grouse, uh, Bunnahabhain, Lagavulin 16 is as good as it gets. But I do, I love a great space hide. Whiskey as well. Speyside's a, whi- uh, a region the the where the most Scotch comes from in Scotland. Kind of in the middle of the country, moving east a little bit. Glenlivet is there. Glenfiddich is there. The belvenny is there. The Macallan, you you name it on down. But to be honest with you, the most exciting stuff I think whiskey wise is happening in the United States, as yeah. especially as producers and craft distillers have gotten away from feeling like they have to just do bourbon, which there's a lot of rules for bourbon. And I fucking love bourbon. I love it. But now you're seeing a lot of American whiskeys come up. That means they're they're making whiskey, but they're not being constrained by the rules of bourbon, which is, you know, 51% corn in the mash. It's got to be aged in new charred white oak barrels. You know, there's several other rules to it. Uh, one of which is not that it has to be made in Kentucky. People, so everybody knows that bourbon can be made anywhere in America. Okay, but that's exciting. Ireland is really exciting as well. I mean, Ireland was a dead Irish whiskey was virtually gone in the nineteen ninety. Really I mean, gone. There were there were about three there wow. were about three or four commercially available brands of Irish whiskey left in the world, uh, and they were all being made at one distillery called Middleton. And it was uh, Bushmills, Jameson, who else was it? Uh, Powers, and maybe Redbreast or something, and then. There started, uh, Pernod Ricard brought the, bought the Middleton distillery and they really started to push Jameson and Jameson, whatever you think of Jameson really drove Irish whiskey back into the public consciousness. And now it's great. I was in Ireland literally the week before everything shut down here. I got back to the States right when I would have not been able to get back, you know, and I had been over there and man, it's exciting what's going on in Ireland. There's, There's a lot of distilleries over there now and they're just cranking out great stuff. I went to the Teeling Distillery, which is the first distillery to open in downtown Dublin in in like a century, Mm -hmm. you know, beautiful stuff. And even I went up to Belfast and they're making McConnell's up there. And man, Ireland excites me. This excites me here with whiskey. And what else? What other spirits do I like? I mean, vodka, eh, you know, rum. I like rum. I'm a rum guy. Yeah. Yeah. What
0: kind of yeah, what kind of like what kind of rum because I'm a rum guy too. I mean, I I I dabble in a lot of it, but for me if, if I'm going to have if I'm going to go out and like drink, I'm like, okay, I'm going I'm going to go with fucking Dan Dunn and all the boys and we're going to drink. Typically I'll either stick with whiskey or with rum. What's your what's your uh preference on the rum?
1: What I love about rum is that, you know, you've got your dark rums, you've got your light rums. Light rums obviously are great, you know, for cocktails as are dark rums, but I like I like to sip on dark rums, aged rums. Um, and then I, uh, you know, nothing like a, a just a, a, a light rum in a, in a, in a Caribbean cocktail. It's fantastic. You know, I, I just, boy, you know, I just love it so much. Like a, uh, a mojito or a daiquiri. It, it's a phenomenal drink. And even a, just a Cuba Libre, a you know, rum and Coke is so refreshing. Yeah. And, um, and then I, again, I, I just had, the word again plantation plantation rum's been around for a while they're they're changing the name finally for probably for good reason but a great i just had a rum uh, it was called the fi isle of fiji that's the name of the expression so i mm-hmm. boy that's a good one it's 20 bucks i just you know i just had it on i just had it on my show recently but oh and then we're forgetting uh of course tequila and mezcal yeah i was gonna get your thoughts on
0: that what what are your because tequila man, I'm a, I'm a fucking fan of that mezcal as well. And, uh, I've had some really good stuff in Oaxaca. Wait,
1: I'm I'm doing, this is coming. Yeah. By the, this show will already be up. I'm, I'm on the Adam Carolla show on, on the 14th of December and we're doing a holiday cocktail segment. And one of the cocktails is a, involves tequila, which, uh, with tequila Ocho, which I love, uh, Fortaleza Fortaleza is kind of my go-to tequila. I love that man. The,
0: big fan of that yeah
1: and here's the, here's the thing with i don't i don't dislike at all but i when i drink tequila i it's generally going to be blanco or reposado for me so everybody yep. knows the rules out there a blanco or a silver if you want to call it a plato is a t te- basically an unaged tequila they can they can put it in the barrel up to two months and still call it a blanco but they generally don't it's it's coming it's just been distilled it, it doesn't see any time in the barrel and then reposado is two months to a year. Reposado means rested. So, by law, it's, it, it can spend two months to a year in the barrel. Anything over a year is añejo or, or aged. And then you get into the extra añejo, and it's like three years or more in, in the wood. So, what happens when a spirit goes into wood? When spirits come off a still, they're clear. They all are, they're clear. A cheap spirits, they can have coloring and stuff. But generally, if you get a brown spirit where that color is coming from, whether it's in a whiskey or an aged tequila or an aged rum, it's coming from the barrel. The, the, the liquid goes in the barrel and it immediately begins to absorb that woody goodness, including the color. So the longer it stays in, if you drink a really old scotch, it's going to be dark because it's been in the wood forever. It's been soaking it all in. Now with tequila, I don't love... The wood influence on tequila, it's it's fine, and there there are some amazing aged tequilas. But I love the flavor of agave, and the more mm-hmm. time it spends in wood, the more wood you get, the less agave you get. So for me, Re- reposado or reposado like a, a, something that's been in barrel for six months, like that that Fortaleza reposado or Sierra Legues is is another one that yes. I love. Boy, they that's just that's just the good. That's a good spot for me with tequila and and I like to sip on those. You know, I mean I love a I love a blanco in a in a in a cocktail as well, but um a tequila soda. I mean, there's a re- very refreshing drink. And then finally, you know, Japanese whiskey. I, and I just thought of it because I thought of the tequila soda. You know, they call it a Japanese highball, and I would take the Suntory toki, yeah. toki, T-O-K-I, Toki,
0: mm-hmm. put
1: that in a, in a highball glass with some soda water and a lemon. That's called a Japanese highball. It's the most, probably the most popular drink cocktail in in Japan, and and it's great. Love it. And, and Toki's not expensive. It's probably forty bucks a bottle, something like that. Yeah,
0: that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna let's do a little a word association game. I'm gonna say a word, and then first thing that comes to mind, Dan. Okay. First thing that comes to mind. All right. Underrated. Me. Overrated. Me. <laughs> Jukebox.
1: Hero. Dive bars, Hinano Cafe, Venice, California. <laughs> Shots. Uh, my youth. Can I use more than one word?
0: Yeah, you can. Uh, I'll, for j- just because you're damn done. All right. Uh, ref- refreshing.
1: Japanese highball, soda, Coca Cola, <laughs> expensive, dating. <laughs> well played
0: well played okay I gotta get your I gotta get your thoughts on this because you've tried probably fucking every alcohol there is known to man seen kind of all the trends and everything that's going on. What are your thoughts on the flavored alcohols and this goddamn seltzer craze that has run rampant around this country obviously we've kind of started off small in the beginning with the alcohol, right It was kind of like this flavored. I don't know who started off. I don't know if it was rum or if it was vodka or whatnot, but now we see all these flavors. And now with this whole seltzer craze started off with the white claws and the truly now it's fucking been inundated with every almost like big beer manufacturer with a flavored beer. The floor is yours. My friend,
1: my position on this has evolved as I've gotten older. Mm-hmm. When I was younger and full of piss and vinegar, I would say, you know, drinking a Bud Light seltzer if they were around back then is probably a sign that you wet the bed as a child, you know, you know, with youth comes certainty. And usually it means that you're certainly, you think you know everything and you don't know anything. So when I was young, I was certain that, you know, there was a purity to drinking the way it should be done. And then the older I've gotten, the more I've realized life's hard enough, right? Life's hard enough without feeling guilty about the things you like and the way you like to enjoy things. And certainly life's hard enough without assholes telling you that you're doing it fucking wrong. Okay. So I don't run out regularly and buy myself seltzers, but people do send me a lot of product to sample and I've tried them. And, and I'll be honest with you, you know, back in the spring, I was going out to Palm Springs a lot to hang out just to get out of town. Cause it's really one of the only things you could do during COVID. And if you're sitting at a pool and it's a hundred degrees Give me one of those seltzers, man. Get, you know, I'm <laughs> serious. They're, they're refreshing and they're light. They don't fill you up. I get it. I get yeah. why people are drinking them. It's not going to be something that I would, it's very situational for me. And it, and that was probably yeah. one of the situations where it would work if I were on the beach and it was hot and I was, you know, sure. Give me that. But I'm not going to go to someone's house for a holiday party and say, do you got the black cherry flavored white call, please. No. I mean, if I'm going to do serious drinking and again, it's me, I will, I used to do this. All right. I will say this. If you're an adult, you should not be drinking anything blue, anything, the color of a Smurf. All right. There's one rule. I, I draw the line right there. Uh, you know, drink what you want, man. I, I remember a long, long time ago, the very first luminary in the spirits world that I ever met I was a columnist in Arizona, so I told you about that when I was down there. And this even predates my trip to Scotland that I told you about. The first one, yeah, was I got it. There was a a guy from this Kentucky Bourbon Trail, and they were coming through town with a guy named Booker No. And Booker No. was Jim Beam's great grandson. Booker's, you know, Booker's Bourbon—that's what was named it. Yeah. yeah yep. So yep. Booker comes in. He's this big old guy, Kentucky. He talked like this. He talked like Hunter. He talked like he talked like Hunter S. Thompson. They all talk that way, I guess. And uh, he came in my office and we did a tasting. And I'd never done a whiskey tasting, and you know I was intimidated because here's this guy, and I I researched him, and he's a legend. He's passed now. He he died, but he he was an absolute legend. And he, I was asking. him, I said, "Well, can I? Is it okay to drink it this way?" And and he was the one says, "You know what, my... My mother told me you drink it any way you want to drink it. You want to, you, know, you want to put it over your Cheerios. You put it over your Cheerios. And he was right. And and you know what? I can tell you, I've met hundreds of distillers since then. And they all say the same thing. You know, drink it the way you want to drink it. If anybody gives you shit, you know, drink it. You know, you, sti- Fuck now you stick your little pinky out when you drink wine. Well, stick your middle finger out instead. Be like, here you go. Fuck you. <laughs> Fucking drink it the way I want. And I'm drinking a White Claw, motherfucker. Yeah. So, yeah, but I don't, do I like, do I like flavored vodka? No, I, I will say this about flavored pre pre yeah. ready-made flavored, uh, spirits. I, I am opposed to that because you know what you can make, you can do it yourself. You can, you can buy a good vodka and you can flavor it yourself. You can, you can do that. Uh, buying it, where they're, they're making some flavor in a factory in Newark, New Jersey, I just, I, to me, it just tastes bad. It tastes artificial. It does, you know, I wouldn't do it so that, that I'll draw the line there and flavored, I love and flavored it. whiskeys too. You know, they, ah, the, fuck, the cherry yeah. and the Jim beam stag and all that. No, <laughs> don't do it. Jim, Jack not Dan, Jack Daniels have one. I mean, come on, man. I, yeah, I get it. Yeah. I get it. They're trying to appeal to a wide, a wider audience, but drink Jack Daniels the way God intended it. God damn it. <laughs> Straight from the bottle with a cigarette dangling from your mouth like Sinatra and slash. Exactly.
0: (laughs) All right. I got to get your thoughts on this because I've never actually been here, but Oktoberfest is supposed to be known as like one of the biggest fucking drinking events in the world. Do you think there's any other event that even comes close to that? And apologies for being naive because I know there's shit that goes down, obviously, St. Paddy's Day in Ireland and all that, but is there something that comes close to Oktoberfest or even fucking bigger that
1: you mean you mean you mean Oktoberfest in Munich?
0: In Munich you, you yes. don't mean
1: just all the celebrations all over the world.
0: Yeah yeah uh, correct correct yeah yeah
1: certainly uh, Mardi Gras New Orleans yeah
0: it's bigger than it's bigger uh, than October. I don't Fest. think it's
1: I'm not saying oh you say comes close. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah it comes I, close. I, okay I don't yeah no I would I would probably think boy I don't know man. I, I've been to both. They're both shit shows. They're both absolute (laughs) shit shows. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So I, I, the closest thing in the, in the United States, Oh, Carnival, I haven't been, but Carnival in Rio Carnival in Rio, I'm sure is bigger than just because it's so fucking big down there. Yeah. There's so many more people. (laughs) I got to figure Carnival in Rio has got to be bigger than, than Oktoberfest in terms of the sheer number of people. And then Uh, I don't know what they're doing in China, but if they're doing something in China, it's got to be bigger. (laughs) So many people there. (laughs) Mardi Gras in India. No, uh, I don't know. What is,
0: all right, this is a two-parter. What is your greatest drinking story? And it doesn't have to be like you were completely shit-faced, but like one of the most memorable ones, you're like, I'll never forget this. What is your worst and what what is your best and what is your worst?
1: They're both probably the same story. No, (laughs) no. Years ago, I was on a press trip to Ireland. We're in a pub and there was a kid, a guy kid. I am mean, using his early 20s. And I was, I don't know, I was in my 30s. He was on the trip and he was, we worked for one of those Laddie magazines, like FHM or something. This had to be 15, 16, 17 years ago or something. And we were in this bar and I was ordering a whiskey. I remember I ordered a Red Breast. And he came up to the bar and he he just reminded me of like, Billy Zabka in the Karate Kid. He was just smirking. He was like an 80s bad guy from a teenage movie. You know, that's what he seemed like. Yeah. And I'm, we're ordering. I'm like, I'm going to get it ready. He's like, nah, bro, bro, whatever the fuck, you know, let me let me get this, man. Let me get it, you know. And We're in this, it's a pub in Ireland. There's a football game on. By football, I mean soccer. And, and he kind of yells out to the bartender. He's like, hey, man, hey, buddy, two Irish car bombs. And it was like the record screech, you know, like, because that's not a popular drink over there, you know. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, an Irish Car Bomb—it's a drink that was invented in the United States by a guy named—I uh, think his name's Charles Oat—back in Vermont or something in the seventies. Think about this drink; it it appropriates three of Ireland's most popular adult beverages: Guinness, Jameson, and Bailey's, right? And they put in a shot. And they name it after an act of terrorism that has cost thousands of lives and terrorized, you know, countless families in Ireland. You know, that's what they do. It would be the equivalent of like, if a, an Irish guy in the wake of nine 11, like opened a pub down near the, the, the smoldering ruins of the twin towers. And he's, you know, and he's, he's going to do a, uh, a drink called the, you know,
0: the flaming tower, flaming
1: tower and it's Budweiser and, and, uh fireball and Jim beam, you know, yeah, it wouldn't be popular. Right. Okay. So this guy yells this thing out. And I mean, people got mad, you know, and the bartenders like feck off, you know? And I was like, (laughs) I'm not with him, you know? And and then it got to the point where these guys wanted to fight us, you know? And I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. And, you know, we had the people with us that were running this press trip and they're trying to intervene and it got hairy. It looked like we're going to get the shit kicked out of us in this pub because this guy, and I was ready to do the fucking crane from Karate Kid on this kid myself, the Ralph Macchio crane, you know, which when executed properly, you can't defend against it. You just can't. You can't at all. Nope. Nope. Uh, Nope. How could you, a guy acting like a ballerina on one leg, there's no way to defend against it unless you actually just punched him, knocked him out. Yeah. Um, Right
0: in the fucking throat. So that
1: one was one that I will always remember. It was both, uh, it was memorable, also embarrassing, and I learned that bars are wonderful places, but they can also be very dangerous places as well.
0: Absolutely. All right. Two 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 more questions, and we're going to let you go. If you were to go to a holiday party, what would you take as a gift to the host?
1: Are you An alcohol present? Yes. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can't go wrong with wine, but that said— I would bring a bottle of Harvey's Bristol cream. Do you remember Harvey's Bristol cream? Come on, dude. Oh my God. Harvey's Bristol cream, man. It was like, it was huge. (laughs) It's a, uh, it's a Sherry and, uh, it's there. Google, anybody listening, go Google, go to YouTube and put in Harvey's Bristol cream commercials. They were ubiquitous in the seventies and they were great because you know, the it's, it's not good. (laughs) But it is, it's just such a cool game. Like if you bring Harvey's Bristol Cream, everybody's gonna be talking about you. And the the commercials would say, Harvey's Bristol Cream. It's downright upright. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck that means. But that was their slogan. It's downright upright. So yeah, bring a bottle of Harvey's Bristol Cream and then save it. You gotta chill it, but save it for later in the party when everybody's drunk, and then create some sort of drinking game where you have to drink the Harvey's Bristol Cream. So in this case, I have a dartboard at my house and we play darts and every year at the holidays I get Harvey's Bristol cream. And if you lose the game, you have to, it's not even a shot. We do like half a glass of Harvey's Bristol cream. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, I'll have to find you. I, I should send you, cause you have your Instagram. I, I'm going to send you a video of one of my friends losing in darts and having to do the Harvey's Bristol cream. And maybe you can post it on your Instagram. I will. I will. See in Absolutely. His face everything that I'm talking about right now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and this is, by the way, just so you know, this video I'm going to send you is from last year. So don't people get all upset. Be like, Where's social distancing? No COVID, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, fuck you, Dan. Dan fuck, fuck you, Dan. You doing, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll, when we get all, I'll send you the Harvey's Bristol cream video. It's my friend Jason. And you'll see just how, um, downright upright it really is. But yeah, but but that said, if you want to just actually impress people, you know, whatever you bring, bring something high end, bring a nice bottle, bring it. Although look, you can get a great wine in the 20 to $40 range. There's tons of them, you know? And, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. Or, you know, surprise them, bring a nice bottle of four lays tequila. I know. I love it. I do. I, I love
0: it. I love their fucking top. Cause it's like that it little looks like an agave pina. Uh, you know? Agave. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right. What's the next for Dan Dunn? Hopefully staying alive, keeping off a ventilator. That's my, uh, that's basically where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm trying not to get uh, like everybody else. I'm trying to stay healthy. It, it's a, it's an interesting, you know, we've been doing this for so long now and now it feels even a little bit more, you know, obviously things are getting worse now. It seems than they've been, but there are also this idea that, that these vaccines are on the horizon. Now I really want to be careful. Cause I, I don't want to be like, man, I made it this long without getting it. And then, you know, you just don't know what the long-term effects are. So really I'm just trying to be, uh, healthy. And, and then in terms of what's next career stuff, I mean, we're just throwing a lot of energy into the podcast. You know, I'm hoping I'll still be doing Corolla every month. I've got a, I'm hosting a lot of events, been noodling around, writing some stuff down that could turn into a book. And hopefully when COVID's over, we start, we make American Wino the movie or TV series. That's, that's what I hope, but immediately it's podcast. I got to get you on my show one of these days too. And we've got, absolutely, you know, like I said, we got some good ones coming up. Uh, the next, I told you Colin Donald's on right now. Next week is comedian Brad Williams. Who's really, really funny. And then we got a, an acapella group on for Christmas. Going to sing some Christmas songs and we're going to drink some booze. And then I'm going to take a break for about a week or two and then come out, uh, out of the gate hot in the beginning of 2021 with some great shows.
0: Fuck. Yeah, man, I'm excited. Um, Tell the people, too, where they can follow you, um, anything in regards to your podcast. Go ahead, man. Fucking. Yeah, man. Well, go, we, just, we just
1: launched a site, what we're Still in the early stages, but go on there. We got a newsletter you can sign up for on Instagram. I'm at the imbiber. But then we also created one. My buddy said we have to have two separate. So I have one for the podcast, which is WWD underscore podcast. So what we're drinking WWD underscore podcast. Follow that for podcast stuff, we're putting really cool content up there. And then also me at the imbiber and then the same thing. I'm at the imbiber on Twitter. You can add me on LinkedIn so I can junk that. <laughs> no, Is anybody on LinkedIn? Uh, I don't know. Is there any other, well, apparently now,
0: apparently now they have like stories and shit on LinkedIn. So it's, it's, it's getting a little creepy. I
1: haven't, I haven't done it, but yeah, that's where you can find me. And yeah, man,
0: your fucking story of Ireland and Irish car bombs—I was never even thinking about that. So, for all you stupid fucks out there who are thinking about ordering something like that in that actual— well,
1: isn't it? It is. It is crazy when you think about it. The drink, the drink is named. If you've ever been to Ireland, they called it the Troubles, man. When Northern Ireland and 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 the southern part were separate, it was horrible. Irish car bombs were cars would blow up in the street and kill people. Right. You know, And it was a common, and this is a guy in fucking America went, you know what? What's their most popular thing is it, it's Jameson and it's Guinness. And let's throw in some of that fucking Bailey's too. And let's name it <laughs> after the thing that killed their fucking brother. Who wants one? <laughs> so I know I seriously, man, Jeez. And by the way, I used to drink them till I learned the history. Yeah. And I was, it was a special skill. I could do an Irish car bomb in less than two seconds. Like, it was so fast. And then once I learned the history, I'm like, I'm not getting this thing anymore. Come on.
0: Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> That's just the fucking bad, bad karma all around, man. You know?
1: Yeah. Fucking Don't hell. Don't do it. Drink Harvey's, drink Harvey's Bristol cream. The only person you're hurting then is yourself. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Why, they're gonna hate me, Harvey's Bristol Cream. I do like I Harvey's Bristol Cream is my favorite novelty drink, and my my close friends know this. Like, I look forward to Christmas every year and getting Harvey's Bristol Cream so that we can play darts and have and the loser has to drink it. It's a lot of fun.
0: See, see now you guys know from Dan Dunn exactly the torture drink you got to bring to every party, even if you're the one that fucking loses. It's downright upright. Wait, Dan, have you ever lost where you had to drink
1: it? Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> plenty of times. And then the more you drink of it, the more you lose. it'll, it'll knock you on your yeah, ass. That, exactly. What's the
0: What's the um, What's the alcohol percentage on that?
1: I think it's probably forty percent. It's like, and it's you know twenty five dollars a bottle. It's it's uh, it was founded in Bristol, England. Uh, it goes way back, man. It was like late 1880s is when it, you know, started. So yeah, but it's great. And, and you got to Google those, YouTube, those commercials. They're so funny. The one (laughs) that the woman says, I would never, normally I would never, she, she's on the phone, you know, the old rotary phone. She's like, hi, hi, Steve. Yeah. Why don't I come over? I got something special. Okay. I'll (laughs) see you in 20 minutes. And she hangs up and then she looks in the camera and she goes, normally I would never be so bold as to, Invite myself over to a man's house, you know, yeah, such <laughs> issues. But when you're bringing Harvey's Bristol Cream, all the rules are off the table, you know, it's like because Harvey's Bristol Cream is downright upright. There you know, go. <laughs> I was like, God,
0: I know I need to have some of that just to figure out what that slogan is all yeah, about. Yeah, get
1: it. And if you, you figure it out, you let me know.
0: I will, I will. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, that's all the time we have for our show. I'd like to thank Dan Dunn from what we're drinking dude it's been a fucking pleasure any last words before we disperse be
1: good to each other
0: yeah we need it i think this country needs it and um yeah hopefully here's to a better 2021 and dan good luck in all your endeavors man i'm i'm, I'm a big fan of yours i always have been since the day i met you and yeah appreciate it as always
1: thank you man it was a real pleasure being on the show
0: yeah absolutely all right guys until next week we will see you then Until next time, we're out. Peace.